Spotlight. I'm Stephanie Shea, uh, and I'm very happy to be back with you after a very long hiatus, a forced hiatus, I should say, because due to my voice issues. For those who have been following me on social media, you will know that I've been uh, dealing with uh, some problems. I'm starting uh, voice therapy, uh, so all of those issues will be uh, will be taken care of. I just hope today that my voice isn't too raspy and it's not too distracting. So enough uh, with uh, with the with the housekeeping. There, uh, my guest today is Dr. Randall Hall. Welcome, Randall. Thanks. <laughs> if you'll allow me to uh, give a brief introduction, Randall Hall is a professor of music at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, as well as a performing saxophonist and composer. Randall, you and I are acquainted with each other through my. Through my aunt, uh, Dr. Patricia Shea, who used to be your colleague before she retired, and I'm so happy that you reached out to me uh, to talk about your work. So that's what we're going to do today. Well, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting uh, discussion today. Well, I'll probably be listening more than I'll be talking. Uh, but at the moment, you're writing a book uh, about speculative music. I'm going to put uh, quotation marks around that and or weird music and how this relates to the sacred uh, and ritual or initiatory experiences. Before we get into all of that, though, I'd like to ask you if you could talk a little bit first about your own background and your inspiration for thinking about this type of music and for researching uh, this particular area. Right. Um, I, my interests tend to be that they always require a lot of explanation before you can even start having the conversation. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I got started in music, you know, coming up playing in the school band um, through junior high and high school, uh, got the bug, decided to go to college to continue studying music. Um, and my, as a sax, I'm a saxophonist. And so my trajectory was started out like most saxophonists. I was immediately channeled into the jazz band and uh, playing jazz. And, and, and I enjoyed that doing that quite a bit. Um, but then later I started to discover the world of classical music. And so that became another interest. There is a sort of very small world of concert saxophone. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, so there's that. Um, and so in college, I, um, well, one thing I got into kind of uh, moving out of my jazz experience was I got heavy into free improvisation. And that is, starts to blur some of the the musical boundaries. Is it jazz? Is it experimental music? It's kind of all of those things. Um, and the idea of free improvisation is that you're just improvising. You get together with people and you just start playing. There's no, you're not playing a tune. You're not working with an organized structure. You just start playing. And that was something I really enjoyed doing. Um, and so I think... Um, that was the beginning of my initiation into weird music. So um, weird, <laughs> weird is a problematic term, um, but it's maybe a little more catchy than some of the more typical names, experimental, avant-garde, contemporary. Um, later, I went to study a lot of this, quote, weird repertoire in France, and there we simply refer to it as music contemporain, contemporary music. Um, and so I came into weird music 
just as a sort of stylistic evolution. There's, um, I was starting to listen to 20th century classical music, which gets quite avant-garde. Um, I was doing this free improvisation. Uh, in my saxophone studies, I was starting to learn some of this more experimental repertoire, which requires um, new playing techniques, extended playing techniques. Um, and I think of that as any sound you can make with an instrument other than the one it was invented to do. So, for example, if the piano is designed to play play pitches on the keys, when you start plucking the strings or hitting the side, that would be an extended technique. So um, suddenly there was a big sound world that opened up on saxophone. I was playing uh, multiphonics, the production of multiple sounds simultaneously, slap tongue, which is a um, percussive technique, um, key clicks, microtones, growls, all of these kind of crazy um, sounds, which I really enjoyed. Um, and so I started to pursue that very um, vigorously uh, in my music studies. Um, and that kind of remains this my specialization as a performer uh, now. Um, and so while I was in college discovering <laughs> this stuff uh, was sort of my first introduction to speculative music. And I think it would take some years <laughs> after to figure out there was a name, name for it. Um, but I had always been sort of interested in religion and mythology and symbols and ritual. And, um, you know, as a young guy in a sort of undefined way, just sort of a vague notion of these things. But I was sitting in my music history class in college and the teacher started talking about the harmony of the spheres. And it was like someone had put a spell on me. Um, just this, I didn't quite understand, uh, what she was talking about, but it, something caught my imagination and I was like, Ooh, so <laughs> the harmony of the spheres, it goes back to the old, the, uh, sort of pre-modern scientific understanding of our, um, heli uh, heliocentric cosmos. Uh, this is the ancient geocentric model. And so the earth is at the center and then the, the seven planets of the ancient world, the, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn. I think that's all of them. Uh, those all rotate around the earth and they generate a sound. Um, so the cosmos is making this musical sound um, <clears throat> that is sort of the, the sound of a divinely ordered cosmos. And I just thought, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. Um, and then I am immediately, you know, being a, a music student was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I play that? What is that going to sound like? And uh, I didn't realize that that was the question <laughs> back in that early, um, early moment. Um, and so it would take, you know, sort of in fits and starts over the years, sort of dabbling in reading more about the harmony of the spheres uh, and then kind of getting overwhelmed and abandoning <laughs> the project now and then. Um, but uh, the idea of speculative music and where the name comes from, well, it kind of has uh, multiple facets. We think of speculation in modern English carries a couple different connotations. On the one hand, when you're speculating, you're just making stuff up. So it kind of carries that more derogatory sense. But also speculation is um, contemplation, deep deep thinking about things, usually about sacred or, or spiritual things. And the name comes back to um, Musica Speculativa is the idea, the 
uh, a speculum is a type of mirror. And so the idea is that music is a mirror that's held up to the cosmos to reflect that divine order. And, you know, the farther I got in this stuff, just the, <laughs> the more I, w- I was hooked on it. So how did I get into writing this book? Well, um, which is still in process, although approaching, <laughs> approaching the finish line. Um, one of the, okay. So speculative music is just a different way about looking at how we make music for most people. When we think about making music, we have some idea of self-expression or expressing an emotion, a shared feeling. Um, and we all know, you know, the, the, the importance of the breakout song when we're young and a pint of gallon of ice cream. Um, and that song speaks to that experience, the shared human experience. Um, and in that sense, music becomes a kind of rhetoric. It is a way of persuading the listener to feel a certain thing. So if I write a breakup song, I'm persuading the, the, um, the listener to identify with or relive those moments. If I write a happy song, I'm trying to elevate their muse. And so it's dealing a lot with our feelings. Um, that's a fairly recent way of looking at music. Um, that sort of originates in the Renaissance and the early modern period. So uh, the 16th and 17th century. Um, And we kind of take that for granted because for the last several hundred years, that's how we've been experiencing music. Um, And that's a perfectly fine way to experience music. But I think speculative music um, is not dealing with emotional expression as much as it's dealing with a sort of symbolic participation. Um, it is in this reflecting of the cosmos of a divinely ordered cosmos. It is, I think less, I mean, listening to speculative music or engaging with speculative music can be an emotional expressive thing. So I don't mean to say that it's the sterile sort of thing, but, um, it is, I think designed to be more than just making you feel something it's designed to make you participate in, I guess we could say, a higher plane of being. Um, I like to use uh, the, the writer uh, Ananda Kumar Swami, who writes a lot about this kind of stuff, um, uses the def- defines a symbol as a representation on one level of existence of something on a higher level of existence. And so if we look at symbols that way, then the speculative music is trying to engage the listener, well, at that higher ontological level. Um, so I wanted to kind of get that on the table. What is the speculative music thing? And um, then the and show it as a way of experience, experiencing music, making music, uh, distinct from our regular models of music making. Now, for me, as a guy who was pretty committed to weird music, this presented some challenges. Um, the historical study of speculative music is a little bit, um, well, <laughs> murky. Um, it gets it gets tricky pretty quick. And when, one of the reasons for that is um, that a lot of mainstream musicologists just aren't um, interested in it. Uh, speculative music... Okay, so there's always been a tension between speculative music and practical music, making music and thinking about music. 
Um, and when we say thinking about music, what do we mean? Do we just mean people who do music theory and are thinking about musical structures, which is kind of how most modern people think of speculative music? Or are we thinking about speculation in this more symbolic way? And a lot of musicologists who, well, first off, not a lot of people are writing about it. Uh, when I started working on this project, I had I went to all the normal music reference academic reference books and you can't just look up speculative music and find a definition it's sort of buried in there if you can find it at all um the groves dictionary of music and musicians which is about in the print edition is something like 25 volumes doesn't have a separate entry on it it in the in the article on musicology you can find a reference um and they sort of refer to it as music theory just thinking about musical structures. And they make a very passing statement about how speculative concerns moved into fringe esoteric movements, end of statement. So we see speculative music kind of, um, well, kind of going the way of your main theme of rejected knowledge. It just is not part of the agenda anymore. So then in that void, um, we find a lot of just weird stuff on the internet. <laughs> filling filling in for that and you get all kinds of overstated and you know superficial and restated uh you know people are clearly cutting and base, pasting from other websites and so on and so forth so it was kind of tricky to get um into this so i've kind of come to think of speculative music you can approach it um three ways and you can approach it historically and try to figure out what people in the past really thought about this um, you can invent it, you just make stuff up, which is how a lot of the internet deals with it. Um, and you can, or you can be aspirational. Um, and I think a lot of the more sort of pop or non-academic, um, ideas about speculative music, about using sound as part of a contemplative practice are not necessarily bad ideas. I mean, they seem to, they're suggesting ways that sound can be uh, engaged with. Um, but they're just not history. So it's fine to aspire to use sound a certain way, but we don't need to pretend it's historical. And so my my objections with some of what you read on the internet is le maybe less about practice and more just about being bad, <laughs> bad history. So, um, so I have tried to be mindful of that, of, of what actually happened. So um, I think think it might make to understand why weird music is disadvantaged it might make a little sense to maybe just go through some of the, the more historical elements um Very good. so this goes back uh i mean some sources say it goes all the way back to the beginning of civilization with the sumerians um that's a little bit past my outside of my pay grade but by the by the time of the greeks uh it's part of the sort of Pythagorean Platonic tradition. And there's a lot of debate about how much, how I mean, we normally describe Plato as influenced by Pythagoras, but it's unclear how much what did he actually know? How much did he, did he uh, just use Pythagoras as his own mouthpiece? Right? So it's all, it's a big muddle and I'm not the guy who's going <laughs> to untangle those threads, but the sort of the gist of it is um, Plato gives us the image of the harmony of the spheres in the Republic at, at the, at the very end. Um, and most people will be familiar with reading the cave and, 
and so on and so forth. So this comes after the cave. And it's interesting because after we leave the cave and we ascend to the sunlit world, if we keep going through the rest of the Republic, we eventually um, get this story about Ur, who is, he's a warrior and he's killed in battle. And days later they get his body, they're getting the funeral ready. They've got him on the, on the pyre ready to burn him. And he wakes up and he's had essentially an out-of-body experience. And during this time he has, um, he has journeyed in the afterlife and um, he goes, he goes to this meadow and he sees sort of not really tunnels, but um, openings below, above and below and souls have gone down to be punished or have experienced reward. Then they all go to the meadow to hang out for a while before their next incarnation. And then at a certain point they start walking to where they are floating, I guess they start moving towards where they're going to enter the world again. And they see the cosmos and it is a sort of series of discs with the different planets going around the um, earth. Uh, in Plato's version, it's, it's suspended by the spindle of necessity, which I can't say that I understand exactly what that means, but um, they, he, they hear this great, song of the cosmos and it is eat there's a muse or sirens are there's a siren on each of the planets and then the the daughters of necessity which are i think i think they work out to be past present future something like that um they're all singing this great concord of the cosmos and it's this beautiful thing and then and then that's kind of all you, that you get so it's really sort of a beatific vision of of the beauty of the cosmos. Okay. So we have that. Well, that's, that's beautiful, but okay. So what does that mean? Well, in another passage or in, well, in the Timaeus, uh, Plato is giving his, um, his account of the creation, his creation myth. And in essence, the demiurge or the, or the craft worker is creating the world according to musical principles. Um, and this is where the sort of music and math stuff comes in. Uh, the account um, gets a little bit dense. And it's a good example of why it's much better to work with a mathematical formula than writing out mathematical formulas. Because Plato like says them in prose and they're just awful to read. It's much easier in math symbols. Um, but basically, he's generating a series of numbers through the powers of, of two and three. And then he does some harmonic means and arithmetic means and goes through all this. And the long and short of it is he creates a big, a, a big bunch of numbers. And then as he sorts through those numbers, he starts to uh, show us that they are uh, boil down to the harmonic ratios. And so, uh, okay, so what are the harmonic ratios? A lot of listeners will have heard um, with or without explanation that music is math. And this is this is what they're talking about. So I'll just uh, try to explain this quickly. So any two musical intervals can be defined by a proportion. And that proportion in, in our modern understanding is understood as a proportion between the vibration, the, the frequency of vibration, between the two pitches, um, or as the ancients would do it through string lengths. So if anybody plays guitar, if you press any string exactly halfway, you're going to produce the octave and we can measure all the other intervals by similar proportions. So uh, talking about music is usually not as good as hearing it. So um, if we take any note, 
Are we hearing that okay? Yeah. Okay. So we have this just a D note. Uh, I have a very, very small keyboard, so we'll have to <laughs> keep things compact. Um, so if I play the octave, and most people will hear that as as a consonant, as something that's stable in um, sounding together. That is defined as a two to one ratio. The if we were to pluck a D a D string halfway, we would go up the octave. If we um, I don't know what the frequency is this, but this one is twice as much as this one. Right. So we've got this two to one relationship. Now if I I'm going to condense this down because of my small um, keyboard. But if we were to do a uh, two to three ratio, we would get that a D to an A, a perfect fifth, right? And then we can create the perfect fourth with a four to three ratio. Right. And what's interesting is if I play, if I, take my fifth and I go from the A to the D, that's a perfect fourth. So this sound contains the relationships of one to two to three to four, right? Or I could go the other way. I could go down, down a fifth, then down a fourth. And so we sort of have the mirror image of that. Um, so we call those, to this day, we call those perfect intervals. And I think a lot of music theory students don't bother to think about where they come from. Uh, we have other consonant intervals. For example, we have major thirds and minor thirds. They come in two different flavors, but perfect intervals only come in perfect. Okay, yes, you can make them diminish and augment it, but normally as consonances, they are perfect. And the reason they're still called perfect goes back to this Pythagorean idea that number is the essence of the cosmos. And the perfect expression of that is through simple whole numbers. Um, and so if we think about this sound as one to two to three to four, well, the Pythagoreans had a symbol called the tractus, I think, Greek. Anybody speaking Greek is free to correct me, which is a symbol. It's a triangle made with one dot, two dots, three dots, four dots. And within that little uh, symbol is all of the perfect intervals. Um, in fact, it was, you know, we take for granted that sound of the major triad, but it wasn't until well into the Middle Ages that this interval was accepted as a consonance. And it wasn't because it was unbeautiful. It was because it didn't correspond to the simple whole number ratios. The ratio for the major third is a bit more complex. Um, and so for a long time, um, thirds were, were not acceptable. You in Even late in the Middle Ages, when you write polyphony, when you're putting multiple parts together, a cadence, the conclusion of a passage, should end on a perfect interval. You shouldn't end... That's imperfect. So it's that sort of uh, symbolic connection between number and sound and cosmos happening. Um, and so, you know, Plato goes in and says that these perfect intervals are the key. And then he fills them in with little little pieces, little notes. And you get the um, the sort of the, the tetrachords used in, in Greek music, which is a totally different 
system. Um, but what's interesting in, in Plato's Timaeus account is bef- the way that the cosmos is made is, I mean, the way I read it is the demiurge is taking elements um, of the intelligible realm, things that are, things are that are essentially the area of the forms, um, things that are beyond matter. And he's taking material things and he's taking the soul as the median between sort of the noetic ideal and the physical. And he's rolling them all out. They describe rolling out. You can imagine kids making with their Play-Doh rolling out these long things and braiding them together. And then using these, these numbers, the musical numbers to mark off where, how he's going to break those off and make the different elements of reality. Um, which is a really beautiful creation account because basically the the eternal is woven into um, the temporal and it's all interconnected. Um, the divine order is built into the physical cosmos through number, musical number. Um, and so the idea is as you make music that uses these numbers, you recreate um, a connection. You make that mirror. Um, you're reflecting that order. And um, there's a great quote by Cicero later um, in his commentary in the Republic um, that he tells a story of uh, of an out of body experience. He meets his deceased grandfather. He ascends into the spheres, and he says to his grandfather, "What is this great and pleasing?" sound and his uh grandfather who's already in the next <laughs> in the next dimension says well, don't you know this is the, this is the harmony of the spheres this is the sound of the cosmos and he goes on to say that um gifted people through song and stringed instruments have created a return to that dimension um much as those who study sacred teachings do and so there is this anagogic idea built into it that music through the numbers will elevate the soul and uh, it was you know the more you find out about this you know, i was i was getting hooked so that's kind of the traditional reading of speculative music this is um this is in play through ancient greece it's in play through the middle ages and through the renaissance now um when I say in play, philosophers and theologians are spending a fair amount of time thinking about this. Musicians are tending to say, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a speculative thing. Now let's make, <laughs> make some music. Um, you know, if you think about a college music department, that's kind of the, the way it goes. A lot of students do what the, you know, they dutifully take their theory class and then they, you know, get to rehearsal. Uh, other people are other students are more interested in this stuff. Um, you know, and I've really, my, my research has really gone into the Europe, the Greece, and then into the medieval Renaissance tradition. Um, but if one were to look into Judaism and Islam, you're going to have all kinds of rich uh, material on this also. And it, this was an idea that kept popping up um, in uh, Indian uh, philosophy and theology, uh, which I find really fascinating, but at a certain point, 
point, one must know their limits and Indian stuff is so vast and and complicated. But, you know, if we think of the use of mantras, if we think of ideas like OM, um, all of this stuff is within that speculative um, uh, idea. So this focus on, on consonances, on perfect intervals, right, has led uh, many to conclude that modern music is ineligible for consideration as speculative music. And so if we think of composers like Schoenberg or Webern in the early 20th century, um, some of the old rules about consonants and dissonance uh, broke down. So if we define a consonance as, as a group of notes that are considered stable and at rest, a dissonance would be a group that are unstable, requiring resolution to a consonant. So here's the traditional dissonance, which would then be resolved to a consonant. Okay. So around the 20th century, um, well, there's a, there's a long progression through the 19th century, which we probably don't need to get into, but the summary is that we started to hear sounds like this. Um, and people say, well, that is just not appropriate for speculative music there is it's it's a discord yada 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 uh so we're not gonna we're not gonna traffic in that um so that's sort of the conventional uh wisdom on speculative music if you're going to attempt to hear speculative music or make speculative music then you really need to stick to maybe medieval music gregorian chant early polyphony uh at the you know, I guess we could put Bach in there, but it needs to be quote pretty music. Um, and there, but there was a, and this gets finally the long way around to the second part of the book. If speculative music is a thing, um, I find that conclusion that contemporary music or weird music is antithetical to speculative music to be faulty. And so the sort of part of my second goal is a sort of uh, apology for weird music and how not only is it eligible to be um, speculative, but in some ways it fulfills speculative goals, I think better. Right. And one of the, one of the things that got me as I was working through this, one of the, again, one of the problems is people don't make very systematic discussions (laughs) about this. So you kind of have to piece it together. But sort of the the gist or the vibe of it is that early music is the best speculative music. So music before about 1600. Music from 1900 forward is just not not speculative. It, this is this is the ugly rationalist uh, industrial music that silenced the harmony of the spheres. Um, but if we do a little calculations, that leaves us with a 200 year period. Um, not accounted for. And that's a significant period in music between 17 and 1900. That is the, the, you know, the most famous classical music, the Baroque classical and romantic eras. So any of the household names from Bach to Mozart to Beethoven, what do we do with these guys? And we need to take account of them. And a lot of sources kind of seem to not really respond to that. People don't engage that question. And it seems to be, If your goal is to say that weird music should be excluded, then that mainstream classical romantic period is kind of accepted. Um, But if you're actually 
look at the internal logic of the argument for speculative music as a symbolic participation, not an emotional expression, then those musics cannot be um, ex- um, included. And it has to do with the question of what what is modernity? What does it mean to be modern? And we use casually uh, modern to refer to the 20th century, and that makes sense because of all of the technological developments um, and so forth. But the the early modern period is usually tracked in the 1600s. And so that is sort of the, the watershed moment in history, uh, which a lot of it is attributed to the rise of science, right? So there's a new worldview and distinct from the earlier sort of mythopoetic worldview, traditional worldview, however you want to refer to it. Um, and it is, okay, so none of these things happen overnight, but I think if you start tracing around 1500s-ish going into the the main part of the Renaissance, we start to see composers move from a more sort of symbolic or architectural approach to their music to a more progressively towards a more modern expressive one. An example um, that might be a little esoteric for listeners, but we'll go with it anyway. If we look at the uh, the early Renaissance composer, Guillaume de Fay, uh, who's still writing um, in a somewhat medieval style. I'm thinking of in his um, Misa Lom Armé, Mass of the Armed Man. He's using a canis firmus structure, which is very, you use a pre-existing tune as a scaffolding. You add, you add parts. He doesn't care about, um, he doesn't care about text setting. You just sort of throw the words on wherever. Uh, it tends to have more open, perfect intervals. So more of that than, I mean, there are, a little more, you know, Dufay is starting to use uh, imperfect consonances, but he, but it's just to modern ears, it sounds um, a little older. Um, whereas Jascan uh, Tupre, who is just a generation after, is starting to really think about the alignment of text and music, uh, about matching musical phrases to grammatical phrases in the music. So he's starting to take a lot of care in text setting. And um, Pieces like his um, Ave Maria uh, Virgo Serena is uh, starting to become more emotional. And this is a piece, um, well, it's it's a, a sacred poem to the Virgin Mary. And there's a beautiful moment at the end of the piece. The last lines are Mater Dei Memento Mei, Mother of God, Remember Me. And he's had this beautiful, florid, imitative counterpoint, and it's floating. It's really wonderful piece. And then at the very last moment, he adds on to this poem, this Mother of God, Remember Me. And he sets it very homophonically. All the voices move together very quietly as though it's a um, his direct personal prayer. And um, this may be urban legend, but the word on the street is that that was the piece he wanted to hear on his deathbed. So we can imagine this very, it's a very emotional moment. Uh, It's not an abstract symbolic moment. It is, it is a a personal moment. And I think those two pieces start to show this shift from this older speculative thing to um, a more modern expression. And if we follow the Renaissance uh, for fans of madrigals, this is the the period where they're getting going after Jascan and just a lot of attention to text setting to highlight the emotional feeling of the text. Now, there is no, it wasn't like on 1600 
January 1st, the Composers Guild got up and at their New Year's breakfast said, now we're going to be <laughs> expressive. I mean, there's a long couple hundred years uh, transition here. But by the 1600s, um, it's this idea of emotions is um, it's solidified enough that not, no less than Rene Descartes will write a little book on, on music. And he says, there's care about your speculation i don't care about your uh your sort of different musical modes influencing it's it's purely um stimulus and psychological response right you hear things and you're at you have a feeling based on your cultural codes with that and if we you know i think descartes is uh it's interesting that he he was dealing with music also because he seems to represent that shift from sort of the pre-modern world to, to the modern world. So as so many um, earlier esoteric or occult sciences are being pushed aside as rejected knowledge, uh, speculative music is really moving out also. So um, because music from 1600 or even before 1600, but by the 1600s, this is really uh, pretty established uh, in the Baroque period. We're dealing with the doctrine of the affections, the way affections are simply emotional states and how can, and, and there are treatises written on how the composers can use rhetoric as a model to influence uh, emotional states. So we're not thinking about s symbols anymore. We're not, we're not dealing with that earlier symbolic view. We're, it's a, it's a pretty modern view of, um, of music. So, the end of speculative music really lines up with so many things in the esoteric as 16 um, it's around 1600 with the, with the birth of the modern world. So the change from uh, traditional musical techniques to more radical musical techniques in 1900 is, is, is simply a technical thing the, a lot of the goals of composers in the 20th century who write some radical music is, is the same as it had been for hundreds of years. They're simply being, expressive um except that uh, um we the traditional narrative of modern art or modernist art in the 20th century is that this this represents this new hyper rational uh positivistic kind of thinking and if you actually look at a lot of the movements and there's a lot of work in art history now too um many of these artists are actually concerned with restoring a sort of spiritual element in art. And, um, you know, Vasily Kandinsky, who um, was an early abstract painter, and he writes a little book concerning the spiritual in art. And he's talking about how these this more abstract um, image making is actually trying to look past this the, the surface of things. And we, he incidentally was a, a pal for a while of Arnold Schoenberg, who is usually considered the great, you know, Satan of this, this whole thing. And, um, Schoenberg, I'm convinced was, was maybe not a formal esotericist, but he was interested in um, spiritual things. And so his, his radically different music was trying to push you past just regular um, perception. So, um, and, you know, there's some more um, some more technical details with the music. Um, we use in our modern system of tuning, uh, we use a, a system called equal temperament, where we divide the octave 
exactly in half. It is acoustically pure, but then every other note in the octave is slightly uh, flat. It's slightly out of tune. We don't use pure Pythagorean tuning. So those harmonic ratios in our modern system have been compromised. And there's, you know, some of our, some of the musical techniques that grew up in the uh, 17th and 18th century, um, for example, modulation, the ability to change keys, become very difficult to do when using Pythagorean tuning with pure ratios. Oh, okay. So you really tend to tune, you would do a tuning keyboard to be in a key. And then as you modulated distantly related keys that become really seen by modern standards out of tune. Um, and so eventually the solution was to distribute um, the out of tuneness. Okay. There's a lot of compli complicated math here, which we'll, <laughs> we'll do very quickly, but to distribute the out of tuneness between everything. So, most people find the tuning of the modern piano to be pleasing. It facilitates these different techniques. But m what I wonder, based on what we said on Timaeus, if, if essentially God has tuned the cosmos one way and we make music that matches that to elevate our souls, then how can we retune for aesthetic reasons and still claim the same, <laughs> this, the same sort of uh, powerful effect yeah, of yeah. number alignment. It just doesn't add up. Um, and in practical terms, that's fine because by the time we used that system, we weren't trying to return the soul. Right. Uh, yeah. So, but I think that really shows a, sh a shift from, uh, in, in music theorists struggled with this for thousands of years. Um, they, I mean, the Greeks knew about, about these problems and, um, and people have been messing with it. But one of the problems um, they didn't move forward with the equal temperament solution is that people realized it messed up the whole Pythagorean number symbolism. So by the modern era, early modern era, people don't care so much. So, I mean, that, so that's the beginning of, of modern music. Um, and the other thing that, that made me wonder about this is, okay, so on the one hand, um, if we imagine using these, these very consonant, Musics to elevate the soul through the, the ascent through the harmony of spheres. This is a beautiful image of ascent, and we might identify that with Apollo and the sun and these radiant images. But if we actually look at uh, traditional symbols, they're not always like that. In fact, they're the opposite, and there seems to be sort of a dark and a chthonic and um, kind of scary set of symbols and i'm thinking of all you know ezekiel's visions of the wheel and you have these creatures with four <laughs> four faces and you have a chariot with eyes all over it that moves in all directions at once and there's yeah. lightning and all of this crazy stuff and i'm like this is not the vision of glorious apollo there's something else going on here and we can i think we can multiply those images really really quickly um and Along, you know, on the way working on this stuff, I got into the Neoplatonist and you have people like Porphyry who writes his little essay on the cave of the nymphs. And he's trying to explain this passage in Homer. And he said, basically says, when you see something weird, that's your signal that you need to do some hermeneutical digging because that's where the, that's what you want to unpack. It's the strange that is the indicator of a higher meaning. 
not the stuff that is is beautiful, radiant Apollo. Interesting. A lot. Yeah, I, I hope so because I that's I hang a lot <laughs> a lot on that idea. Yeah. But if you think about you know some of the more traditionalist. Um, writers like uh, uh, Gwenon and Chuan and even Kumar Swami. Uh, Kumar Swami is a writer I really enjoy. And he, he really makes the argument for a speculative art, I think, very effectively. But then he turns around and says, yeah, but anything in the 20th century is garbage. It just, we've, we've completely lost it. And it's like, you, but he, he spends a long time talking about how in traditional iconography, images are always abstracted. The figure is always stylized. And he says in all cultures from, from India to Japan to Europe uh, to the Americas um, will be not a biologically accurate depiction of a figure, but it will be stylized in some way. And it's a reminder that you're not looking at a person. You're looking at something that represents something on a higher level. Yeah. So if we, by analogy, if we take that to music, if we listen to music that is, is, well, that seems familiar. Um, you think about your favorite pop music, your favorite folk music, or even familiar classical pieces. There's something, uh, when we engage those, we have feelings, feelings about what? Ourselves or our friends, uh, or people, people like us, we're staying in, a, in our regular frame of reference, or maybe deepening our experience of that reference, but we're still in our frame of reference. When we hear, um, if we take Porphyry seriously, if we read something that's weird and bizarre, um, that tells us to look deeper. Well, why not if we hear something that seems weird or bizarre, maybe that's the marker that something different is happening and we're familiar with this trope um in the movies mm-hmm. you know right if we watch twin peaks which does this i think better than anybody that very first ep- I, pl- I play clips in my cl- music history classes sometimes um you watch that opening of twin peaks the original series and it's gonna oh they're setting it up as a normal cop drama Right. And then by the end of the episode or the next episode, they go into the red room and you're like, what is going on? <laughs> right. And so there's this stylized coloring. The lighting is weird. They have that wonderful effect where they speak backwards and play it forward, which just adds this uncanny level. All of those things following Porphyry are markers that there is an esoteric truth to be, um, to be mined there. And so, um, so esotericism, I think, became a little bit of the, the hermeneutical key for, for, for digging through this stuff. <laughs> if, I, if I may ask a question then in, uh, with regard to the texts from the Corpus Hermeticum where Hermes is talking to, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, he's taught, uh, and he's talking about the, uh, you know, all of the, the, the stories that they're talking about, if you could take those teachings, and of course, in that period of time, there were also uh, texts written down, and you talk about this as well, with uh, vowel sounds that are supposed to be sung, and a particular pattern of these vowel sounds are supposed to be sung. Do you think then, are you, because I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, the sounds that were were being sung during these rituals, they were not coinciding with the Platonic 
uh, intervals that were centered around beauty and what you were just giving the beautiful example of, of how these sounds were supposed to be played, the speculative music. So are you thinking then that these rituals that were being performed uh, also had this weird quality to it? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, well, it, okay, and I certainly can't offer an, a historical, just, <laughs> accurate answer. Just your opinion. Yeah, yeah um, okay. So, as I said at the beginning, everything I'm interested in requires an explanation before. <laughs> right. No so, problem. Um, all right, so, okay, so here, I think we've sketched out the situation. There's the speculative music, but there's this weird music. They're not supposed to coincide. How do they coincide? And um, one thing that really put me off of this was the idea that if you take harmonic ratios, they will give you a scale. They'll give you a tuning for a scale. There is no instruction that I'm aware of in any of the ancient sources where they tell you what to do with that scale. So when Plato talks about those ratios, he's thinking about Greek music that he understood. When a medieval person talks about those, they're thinking about medieval music. If an Islamic scholar in the Middle Ages, he's, he's thinking about Islamic music from the era. Um, and so there seems to be a tendency for people to assume that when you're talking about speculative music, speculative music will be whatever kind of music that they think of as speculative, which is how we think yeah. about all music. You know, I have a teacher course to general uh, general education course to non-musicians. They say, what kind of music do you uh, listen to? You know, they say, well, all kinds. I listen to Taylor Swift and Metallica, right? But yeah, but do you listen to, you know, Shakuhachi flute playing? Yeah, right? yeah. There's a Okay. <clears throat> so one of the things that was, we will get back to your uh, incantations. <laughs> we are working back there. Um, the thing that kind of really opened this up for me was stumbling upon a Neoplatonist uh, Iamblichus, or I guess Iamblichus is the Greek. Uh, and he wrote a text on the mysteries of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Assyrians, um, all, which is the the title that was given to it later. Uh, and I thought, okay, this guy's talking about mysteries. So he must know something about <laughs> what's going on. Um, and he was the guy who really opened up the rest of the Neoplatonists for me. But in, in On the Mysteries, he is giving the defense, the philosophical defense for theurgy, which are these, these Neoplatonic ritual practices um, <clears throat> that, that are supposed to elevate the soul to elevate the soul. Or yeah, what you were talking about before. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So they're talking about actually doing it. Now, one of the yeah. big things for Iamblichus is is how he defines symbols. Um, are things that are material items, and they could be, um, you know, plants, animals, uh, metals crystals, uh, what have you, that are ontologically linked to a divine being or, or divine energy. And so I'm reading about this, okay, and I'm thinking of what I know about Vedic mantras from India. Mantras don't express the gods. They don't invoke the gods. Mantras are the gods. They are the same thing. 
And then I keep reading, and then he starts talking about the what we often translate as uh, Wokus Mystici or Wokus uh, Magici, the barbarian names. So they, have, they have a stunning array of, of titles. But these are essentially nonsense syllables. Uh, nonsense syllables, so, so sounds that have no semantic meaning, but are often precisely, carefully arranged and transformed. Well, I'm thinking about Vedic mantras, and then I'm thinking about a sound that does not carry linguistic meaning but is carefully patterned. That's a definition of music. Yeah. Music sounds that are patterned <laughs> that don't carry any in any. I'm I'm, I'm an advocate that uh, music n- is not capable of carrying semantic meaning. Uh, that you can't. Okay, so if we think about a movie soundtrack, a composer can create up a sort of momentary system of representation, right? And if you think of the Lord of the Rings movies, you have the the woodwinds, pastoral woodwinds for the Shire and the scary uh, trombones for the orcs or or whatever. So you have so they they're creating a system of semantic meaning, but it's only relative in that that private moment. But music itself, there is no dictionary where you can say, well, this this key equals this thing. Right. There are lots of competing systems of that. People try to make those correspondences, but it just—it doesn't. I don't buy it. So music is fundamentally asemantic. However, because we understand how different musical systems work, what I think music does is it creates the impression of a meaning—a meaning, but a meaning that we can never confirm. So music in any guise is actually pretty esoteric, right? If we think of of Porphyry's weird symbols, they are um, things that suggest something to us. They activate our imagination. We start thinking past their literal image towards something that we can't quite get to which is kind of what we experience when we feel even regular emotionally expressive music. You get, you can't quite get to what that feeling is. Um, so, so this just, you know, this knocked my socks off when I got, I started getting right. introduced. Yeah, yeah. So my sense, I mean, back to your question is, okay. One thing I found interesting is everybody kind of assuming based on their particular music theory that their culture uses is kind of in this idea of harmonic ratios was not something that Europe discovered by itself. I mean, every the Chinese knew this, everybody knows because it's just, it's just math and acoustics. So if you're paying attention, you can, and you're, you're smart, you can work it out. I'm glad other people worked it out and told me, cause I don't know <laughs> if I would have. Um, so, okay. So that's the thing that, that, that exists, but there's not a lot of, discussion about musical practice um in conjunction with ritual either you know um if you if you reading through it doesn't matter modern to to, um well i think of you know joseph campbell relates a lot of uh native american stories and when he relates them they say oh well this happened this happened they went here and then they sang a song and then the the story picks up and it's like yeah what was the what was the song (laughs) that's what i want to know well, part of the problem is if you don't have a system of notating music and you don't have recording technology, then 
that's just lost. Um, and even when we do, you know, we have European notation, but some of that is, you know, the musicologists have to fill that in because we don't know exactly. Yes. Anyway, so so I don't know that we can um, say much about music in these um, contexts, but if you think about it, any any ritual will take you out of your normal frame of reference. And this could be something, you know, I don't know, some goofy, you know, summer camp thing where they uh, actually a good depiction is in the the film um, Finding Nemo. If you remember, Nemo winds up in the aquarium and the fish tank and the other fish take him through an initiation ritual, right? And it's done at night and they have the volcano bubble thing. And it seems, well, um, I mean, Joseph Campbell, again, refers to ritual as things designed to take you out of your normal frame. So um, you're not, you things are supposed to be different. You do rituals in special places, maybe you wear special clothes, uh, maybe you do special lighting, uh, maybe you have incense burning, which is an underutilized way to, I mean, smell is a super powerful sense that we don't take into any account in our media, concerts, movies, I guess theater could, but, um, so you've got that going, um, potentially you have a special language, right? Before Vatican II, you would do the mass in Latin as another way to push you out of that normal frame of reference. So it seems to me that rituals are, are aided by, uh, making them different. And if we think about it, any concert is a type of a ritual, right? You're, you're, you, you go into, maybe you wear nice clothes, you go into a room, you're going to sit very quietly, the lights will turn off. A special person who's wearing special clothes will get up and do something special and you will be attentive to that. And, you know, and just even regular, a regular music concert, um, it's a moment to pause your normal activity. You're not worrying about the laundry piling up. You're not worried about getting the bills paid. You're just focusing on the music. That might be very somber if you go to a classical recital, but if you go to a rock and roll show, it may become this uh, Dionysian ecstatic um, frenzied thing. Um, and so you have, Especially but I think with the drumming and stuff like that, that oh, also, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, you could even extend that for some people going to sporting events and you have that collective moment and you are allowed to kind of go off the chain and be as, as crazy <laughs> as loud. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think this is, you know, people love to go to the dance club um, which, because you have that intense environment, you have the com communal environment, you've got lighting, you may or may not be psychologically, you know, mentally altered, psychologically altered yeah, by yeah. Um, and there, you know, in our, our mainstream culture, ritual is not really a, a part of it. So I think we have these alternative outlets. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm proposing is, well, and another way to think about uh, ritual is the, active, the activation of symbols. And I think this is what Iamblichus is saying, is that you have these, if you're... Um, you know, if you've made correspondences between material items and, in fact, sounds uh, with a certain en divine energy, and you at you use those in an activity, you're 
your, I mean, whether the, the ritual is the activation of the symbols or uh, the symbols charge the ritual, however, I mean, it's sort of the, the chicken and the egg at that point. <laughs> you're using activity um, in, in, well, with spe- special, special items, right? Things that you've associated. Mm-hmm. However one wants to look at that, that's going to do something to you. All right. And we can probably all think through our lives if whether people have a ritual practice or contemplative practice or they just did some um, maybe some of those sporting initiations or summer camp special things they do. There are these moments where we mark off times for special things to happen. So part of what I'm trying to do, I guess, is figure out a way to create music that is symbolic and then what do you do when you have a collection of pieces? You present them in a concert. So if you're, um, so I don't think I'm doing something so radical from traditional concert practice, but I think I'm just trying to lean in and emphasize that, that sort of ritual component. Um, right. And you've actually, uh, you've done this by composing uh, music as an attempt or in an attempt to create a, type of ritualistic repertoire, a theurgic repertoire. And you were uh, very kind to share uh, your work titled Oracle with me so that I can edit some of the music into this video when I'm producing it uh, for upload so that the, the viewers can actually hear what this music sounds like. So this, when listening to this, I don't get the sensation that this is just your everyday type of music. This is very, very different music. This is, it kind of gave me the same type of uh, reaction uh, as when I listened to Rite of Spring or maybe Eric Satie or music that we all, most of us probably all know, Stravinsky and Satie and we, we know these composers and we know that they have these works or maybe even like a more of a, uh, I, I consider um, the planets Holst. Mm-hmm. If you listen to uh, Neptune with the, mm-hmm. with the, the, the voices at the end and you know, this, this kind of this, yeah, very uh, otherworldly, almost sometimes eerie kind of, uh, uh, evoking that that comes up, but also what I found very interesting with your music is that when I would put it on and I would be like writing things, reading, you know, I was reading your work and I was writing notes and I was, you know, making notations here and there and thinking about this, it kind of brought me into this state. I don't want to, I don't want to use words like trance because it's almost kind of almost a cliche nowadays talking about the trance or, you know, people talk about getting into a flow, but it, it definitely brought me into a different mental state where I was very focused on what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it was very different from other times when I would put other pieces of music on that, you know, just, or just the radio or whatever. So I personally felt a, uh, a difference in the music. So I'm curious to know, um, 
you know, what, I mean, it sounds like up until the point, up until this point where we've been talking about how you, how you're viewing this, this different music, this weird music, that there is supposed to be some kind of, uh, purpose for this music so that it, it, it evokes a, a, a response in the, in the person, putting them maybe in a liminal space or, uh, you know, a set apart space where, where something special is happening, um, and I'm wondering, what is your thinking process then about how this music works and how it should sound? How, uh, what is the sound doing? Because obviously it was doing something to me. So in your opinion, what, what is going on here? What is the sound doing in the composition uh, to the listener and also to you when you're performing it? And and how, yeah, I'll just, I'll stop there. I have Tons of questions, but I was <laughs> would yeah, you tackle well, that first? <laughs> well, first, let me say that's very exciting for me to hear because it's you know we don't in in these kinds of fields we don't always get a lot of <laughs> a lot of feedback. We send, <laughs> send our music into the world and hope for the best. So, so that's that's exciting for me to know that it, it had an impact. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> oh, okay. So I was one thing. Right, one thing that was discouraging along the way, or if we go back to my initial encounter with the harmony spheres, how do I make that? How do I make that audible? What do I do? And harmonic ratios are nice, but okay, I've got some notes now. What do I do with them? So one thing coming across the Wokus Mystici in in Iamblichus in this idea of these incantations, right? And you you refer to some of them are just these open vowels, they're only vowels. Um, and then some of them are these just almost unpronounceable clusters of consonants. They're just, just crazy stuff. Genesis prote te Genesis prote te Genesis prote te Genesis prote prote. Neomatos, neomat neomatos, tu enemoi, pneumatos, neomatos, proton. But um, now, one source we have for these is the Greek magical papyri. And so that's that's an actual, you've ta- I think you've talked about it on the, the show before. Um, that's an actual magic book from the late antiquity, uh, written in Egypt, but in the Greek language. And it includes the tells you exactly how to cure your headache, um, win a chariot race, um, things like that. Um, and then there's the Mithras lit- liturgy, which is the most um, sort of speculative one, I think. But within these, you have just these the you know, and the they there may be fragments of words from Hebrew or um, Egyptian and mixed together. It's not really clear. Um, there's a lot of debate about that. I let the linguists are going to have to work that one out. Um, but one of the things you can see in the Greek magical papyri is that like some of these strings of vowels you've talked about, they'll do a thing where they write, write them all out and then they repeat it and they drop one and then they repeat it again and drop one. So you get these sort of triangle, yeah. triangular situations. You'll have things where you'll just chop a letter off you, where you rotate the letters. Uh, sometimes they're palindromes, which is, so there's some careful syntax there, and again, that's that's the the arrangement as a quality of music. And about the time I was um, 
discovering this, I also came across the work of Fritz Stahl, who was a Vedic scholar. He died in the late 90s, maybe. Um, and he wrote a little provocative paper called Rules Without Meaning. And his thesis is that all ritual activity is meaningless. Now, he's writing from a very positivistic framework. Um, so he says, this doesn't mean anything. All ritual is, is syntax. It's orderings of doing things. Later, people added symbolic content to it. So if we took a familiar, more familiar example, according to Stahl, something like uh, the Eucharist would then has just have been choreographed eating and drinking that later picked up this association with Christianity. Uh, I don't know that I totally buy into the not totally meaningless structure of ritual, but that got me thinking about syntax, about ordering, about, about patterns a, lo a lot. <laughs> and at the same time, another little synch synch synchronistic moment is I had given my 20th century music class uh, and they had an assignment. They had to write a piece that did not use any regular musical sounds and couldn't use any regular musical notation. Oh. And so they came up with this, just all kinds of kooky stuff. And this one kid, he did this thing and he went up to the table and he had a pad and a paper and a coin and he would flip a coin and then he'd write something down and he'd flip a coin and write something down. And I was engrossed in this because I had just read Stahl's paper about meaningless ritual. And clearly he was following some rules that I didn't understand. And just the act of doing something as silly as flipping a coin and writing things down, when you perform it and you set aside time, this was the, his performance of his class project. You set aside time, you're all quiet, you're all focused, and he's doing this dumb stuff but he's clearly doing it according to some set of rules. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is something's going on here between all this stuff. So if we've got these invocations from, from the ancients that are following these patterns, they don't mean anything. Well, the transformation of, of language units that got me thinking about the Kabbalah. Um, and, one of the problems for me in researching the Kabbalah is everybody wants to talk about these sophisticated philosophical and theological notions. I didn't care about any of that. I, well, I mean, I do, but I wanted to get – I wanted to learn more about techniques of word transformation. So this took a little while um, to track down. Um, but uh, – and I don't quite understand if anybody's a specialist in Kabbalah. I'm, I'm open to guidance. But um, there are specific word techniques – or were patterns of transformation. Um, the three main ones are Notirikon, Gamatria, and Tamura. So Notirikon is the idea that you can, um, if you take a phrase, you can make it, take the first letter and make an acronym and so shorten it, or you can take a word and expand it out from an acronym. So that idea of, of filling out or or contracting. Uh, gematria is the famous number substitution. In Hebrew, you don't have independent characters for numbers, so you use letters, and that means words have numerical values. Well, now you can look for all kinds of symbolic um, uh, symbolic meaning between words with the same numbers. And, and tamura, tamura is, and I'm sure I pronounced everything wrong, but 
um, is the idea that you you can rotate the alphabet, right? So if you were um, if you were to write in English the first thirteen letters and then turn around and put the last thirteen letters, you know, A would become Z and B would become Y and so forth. And so you can right. can cross this up. So basically. Uh, all of this stuff mushed together that I should be thinking about syntax and patterning and transformation and, you know, freely. Um, one of the nice things about being a creative artist and not a historian is I- I'm allowed to to ma- do mashups. Um, this, I did find one paper arguing for historical continuity between Iamblichus and Kabbalah, but that's just one. So I don't. I, I'm not claiming that there is, but in my imagination, they all went together. And so, essentially, the the pieces uh, that I sent you were written by adapting these cabalistic transformation patterns to music. So I would, um, and I also uh, was encoding some of these ancient uh, texts. In, into it, either the Greek magical papyri, um, the Chaldean oracles are um, one that come up for the Neoplatonists a lot, and so I would just take take these things, often working in the original Greek, and um, just assigning a short motive to a letter, and then I would kind of work out the motives in alphabetical order, and then as you arrange them according to the ancient text, all the motives get scrambled. And you get to you get what you're writing is then revealed to you. So <laughs> it was kind of kind of okay. a oh. on pins and needle to see what you would get, and then I would add some of these cabalistic transformations. Either I would rearrange the letters of the original text, uh, which which worked to some extent, but I needed more variation. So I started applying those to the actual musical motives, and so. For example, when I applied gematria, um, there is no, you know, Hebrew has a long-standing assignment of numerical value to letter. Well, there isn't any standardized numerical value to pitch, so I simply made one up, and so then I would calculate the numerical value of um, of the of the phrase, and then I would combine that with a rotation, maybe re replace some of the pitches according to um, a different Kabbalistic procedure. And then you, the transform motive has a new numerical value. And so then I would have to add pitches to restore it to its original numerical value. So, so it was, you know, within my personalized system, it was um, things, things matched up. Um, I mean, really what I was doing is a form of algorithmic composition, which people think of as, um, uh, Milton Babbitt or Pierre Blaise, they write these elaborate pre-compositional edifices that tell you how to, um, rules for churning out the piece. And essentially, once you set up these complicated procedures, you just calculate them and it all is, is there for you. So I was doing that. Um, people often think of that as a very uncreative process. Um, the creativity, I think, is in creating the rules for the transformations, um, you can tip the scales in whatever direction you one wants uh, by depending on what musical motives you put in at the beginning. And so, whereas some of the Milton Babbitt may be a little sterile sounding, um, I tried to put some of the special effects from my weird music into it to create the sound world that I 
that I like. But this idea that I didn't worry about how different when I talk about emotive, I mean a really tiny sliver of music that would be just a, a blip on its own. So I didn't work them out. Um, well, if you think of a, you know, a Schubert melody, they're going to be, that's a carefully created whole. What I essentially did was made little musical Legos, right? Little independent oh, pieces okay. that didn't, didn't, I didn't know how they were going to fit together. And then the following the rules, which we can think of as an algorithm, but according to Fritz Stahl, we can also think of as a ritual uh-huh. um, because the ritual practice is just the rules of your activity. So I put these together um, and made the transformations according to the rules. And so, which added another interpretive layer because then as a performer, once I, I got this text that I didn't know a score, I didn't really know what it was going to be until it was over. I had to figure out how to make musical sense out of it. And I may have pushed a note here or there, depending on what I thought made worked better. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, you know, I started working on this at the time I was working on this, my, my wife was undergoing cancer treatment. And so, you know, she was sleeping a lot and I was just wanting to be home and I wasn't going down to the basement to practice because I want to be near. And so um, I spent time crunching these numbers, you know, with a notepad and working this stuff out. And I have to say, um, concentrating on this kind of stuff and playing these little essentially number games, letter games, um, there was a strange kind of absorption in just working out the math for this stuff, which seemed to me to, to strongly suggest that Stahl is onto something that Pat just paying attention to patterns, not assigning any meaning to them, but, but just working with patterning. Um, is there's something going on there. Um, and, you know, in, in general, these pieces have been fairly well received and my, it makes me think these Kabbalists, <laughs> I think they knew something. <laughs> they knew something about patternings and what that does to our psychology. I mean, you can decide how far you want to take it, but if you do, the, I mean, even though they're highly adapted and they're personalized and I'm, and I'm kind of making stuff up, they, the pattern is embedded in the musical process. Those patterns are happening as you listen. And you don't, even if you don't hear them, there are relationships that are, there are Kabbalistic relationships unfolding in real time as you listen. And that I think, you know, really makes me think something, something, right. something is going on. Yeah. So in the research that you've done on, on this uh, idea of ritual and, and, initiatory experiences and the, the idea of the sacred and, and all of these things combined and also with composing the music and make, yeah, working out all the numbers and, and sitting with that and yeah, this whole process that you, that you went through, what are your takeaways from, from this process? Is there, you know, have you learned something? Have you come to any deeper insights as, as a, as a musician, as a composer, or just, you know, philosophically thinking about how this sound is, uh, how it's working, what it's doing. Yeah. Um, boy, that's, there's a lot in there. Um, I mean, I I'm tend convinced... not to ask easy questions. I'm sorry. I ask too many complicated wait, wait, wait. things. 
<laughs> well, and I think and that, that kind of gets us to, to one of the points. You know, if you ask me what was on my shopping list for later this afternoon, I could tell you exactly and who would care. Um, and there's something, this, this idea that, that the weird, the enigmatic, the uh, strange, even the disturbing, I mean, that's a thing, that's the nature of symbolism. Um, and that keeps coming back in all kinds of, you know, mythologies and esoteric systems and um apophatic mysticism it's just it's it's all over it seems to to be a recurring theme with people who have thought about this stuff and um i have said to my students to their frustration that music is the enemy of sound Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is okay so if we think about language right now you're hearing me talk think out loud about sound and you're putting the sounds together immediately faster than you can even imagine to get past the sound to the linguistic content of what i'm saying and when we know what something means we tend not to hear it you're hearing ideas you're hearing sentences you're not we're not hearing the sonic qualities the distinction between different types of consonances between consonants and vowels not really mindful of how I'm using pacing to make certain things, certain points, um, had the rhythm of the music. Uh, we take all that for granted. Maybe you're doing some emotional coding based on my inflection and so on and so forth, but we're not really listening. And I think the same thing happens in music. When we hear a tune, we tend to hear something like a statement, like a sentence. Uh, and if it's a tune we recognize, think of your favorite pop song. Uh, we spend less time listening to the timbre, to the to just sound, the pure sound of things. And one of the things I like in weird music, depending on which type of weird music, um, is that there's a much greater focus on sound. I'm uh, thinking of people like Pauline Oliveros and her deep listening sound practice. Um, which is just about exactly what it sounds like, listening. Um, uh, Giacinto Chelsea, who wrote his famous four pieces for orchestra on a single note because he wanted to simplify the pitch content so that you listen to the ever-shifting um, qualities of a single sound. And he was way into all this kind of speculative <laughs> stuff also. Um, and I think in order to get to that point where we're hearing sounds, there's this sort of deconstruction of, of meaning that has to happen analogous to what we've been talking about with some of these invocations. So I think, I think, um, I think some of that is happening. And then I think as you combine those sounds into maybe more complex structures, when they're unfamiliar, they sort of um, force you well, again, out of your regular modes, um, I've come up with an idea I call the hermeneutical leap. And it's the idea kind of building on porphyries that when you're confronted with something that you can't make make sense out of, you have to struggle a little bit to come up with some kind of way of, of reconciling your, yourself um, with this. And if all of this is related to the sacred, um, 
for the transcendent, however one wants to care for it. Another, um, another takeaway from Joseph Campbell I took is the idea that all of this stuff is beyond names and forms, right? Uh, he takes this from the Sanskrit Nama Rupa. It's not, and, and this comes up with apophatic writers like, well, Plotinus or uh, one of my favorites, Pseudo-Dionysius, the Arapagite. And he's saying, you, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, Plotinus says, we call it the one. But even to name it the one is inappropriate because it's beyond all understanding. It's beyond all conception. And I think one thing that happens is as we cling to that sort of the harmonic ratios and that glorious ascent to Apollo, I th we're making that evaluation based on music that makes sense to us, which is the opposite <laughs> of apophaticism. You know, and pseudo Dionysius comes back, and if you're going to say God is light, that's fine, but you also say God is not light. You have to negate that image. And there creates this hermeneutical conflict. You start getting in a, in a word loop. You have, well, you have to affirm it, but then you negate it, but then you have to negate the negation. So is that an affirmation? Well, we're going to affirm the negation of the affirmation just to negate it. And I think when we hold on, when we listen to music that's familiar to us, none of that is happening, right? If I, if I teach Mozart in class, nobody wonders why I'm teaching Mozart. Oh, of course we all do Mozart. I'm only affirming everything we already know. But when I bring in some, some strange stuff and the kids are having their first experience with it, they're like, well, what are you doing? What are you, why are you playing? That's not music. Well, that's well, what do you mean by music, right? And so then we're into a big, we have the opening to do a lot of different kinds of reflections. But so if this is somehow some, any of this music that I'm trying to make is symbolic of the transcendent, you know, the regular rules of reasoning don't don't apply. Uh, and you had uh, uh, Valder Honograph a, a while back talking about his new book on, on the Hermetica. And he was talking a lot about noose and um, and this, we, we translate it as intellect, but we're not talking, it's not about regular scientific positivistic. Right, it right. is a super rational mode of, of knowing. Um, and that's ultimately, I guess, where I'm trying to push. I'm trying to create a hermeneutical crisis in the listener, along with a sort of set and setting through the concert um, to allow... Um, the imagination to kick in, you know, it's like, what is this, what is happening here? Well, you know, Iamblichus might say there's, you sing these incantations and that brings in whichever deity. And there are systems around the world that, that do that. Um, I think, you know, the Tarantella with the, the spider bite in Southern Italy in yeah, olden yeah. days have to find the right tune for which spider inflicted. You know, so there are these correspondences, but those are, are localized and, and conditional and depending, you know, people in those traditions, that's, they they should pursue those traditions, but I don't think those of us out of those traditions need to become bound to them. So is is it really, is there some ontological linking? Is it, uh, is it a spiritual transformation? Is it a psychological transformation? Uh, one of the things working on this project um, has come to me is, I don't really know what the difference between something meaningful, a meaningful psychological experience versus a meaningful spiritual experience. I, I don't know what those what the difference is between those. 
we assume there's a difference, but I'm, I'm not so sure. And um, I think it was um, Antoine Favre who in his, his sketch uh, or his, his outline of esotericism talks about one of the qualities that makes something edit, uh, esoteric is the mediation of the imagination. Okay, so what do you mean about myogeneity? Is that just the, the, the mental faculty where the neurons make stuff up? Or is it more like an Henri Corban is literally looking at Sufi mystical texts and saying yeah. the, the, the imagination is where the angels interface with us? I don't know. Um, but there's something that happens, I think. I mean, looking at it as the mediation of the Im- imagination, I think is... I think. I don't know if we need to define that. Something happens inside us, I think, when we put ourselves in the right environments or we yeah. read the right texts. I think so, too. And, uh, and uh, Henri Corbin also talks about imagination as the organ of perception. It's a it's an ontological state uh, that he's talking about. There's a like a, a, uh, in between the the physical and the spiritual. There's this this imaginal state and this is our 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 faculty uh to to per- perceive and this is not just mere uh you know figments of you know fantasy that's coming up and like daydreaming or, or something that might be just you know are you thinking when you when your mind kind of wanders a little bit when you're listening to a a long long lecture and you're thinking about oh yeah what's what do i need to pick up from the grocery store later you know those types of things it's different it's very and i think personally i think i had this tiny little glimpse of that faculty of perception with that focus that i had when i was listening to your music and i it really made a deep impression on me I, you know, to come back to that point, uh, one writer I've drawn on a lot is David Lewis Williams. And here's again, he's a, not an esotericist at all. He's a, an anthropologist, archaeology guy. And he his work, he has, his book is The Mind in the Cave. And he is interested in the origins of Paleolithic cave paintings. Okay. And he's uh, South African. And so he the um i guess the uh the sand of the kalahari in olden times had a tradition of rock painting and so he did a lot of of study of that sort of thing but his his conclusion to spoiler alert is that he thinks essentially um, our ancestors were going into these caves and doing uh shamanic type rituals entering altered states of consciousness and then recording those visions on the cave cave wall mm. sort of intensifying the, the location uh it's the place where experience took took place but then also through the paintings it intensifies for the next um next group to come come do that but he you know he's a, a scientist he's 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 not um i mean he's looking he's really into neurology and brain chemistry and so but but this which i think is really interesting is by looking at the 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 science um he talks about the idea that the the brain naturally goes through uh, on a predictable schedule these different levels of inward and outward right where we have this hyper focus alert rationality is the term he uses and then we move into these sort of daydreamy things and there's um sometimes we're controlling the action in our daydreams and then later the daydream kind of controls the action we kind of just float through that <clears throat> and then his argument 
is that we shouldn't use the phrase altered states of consciousness because it's it, it suggests there's a normal state of consciousness. It says your brain is designed to go through all this stuff. He also concludes that your brain is is designed to go into a full-blown trance, that that is a normal, healthy part of, of, of healthy brain activity. Um, and so then as a not at all a mystical guy, he then takes our sort of Western culture to task by saying we have lionized alert, rational consciousness and, and assume that that's the best um, when that is not what's supported by the, the brain research. Um, and other cultures who are practicing trance and, and the research is like something like 94% of the world's cultures practice some form of institutionalized trance. We're the outliers. We have not embraced the full spectrum of human consciousness. Um, and yeah. And so, and so that there's more going on here. And this is from a guy who's a complete materialist, you know, rationalist dude, but just by looking at the science. And I love these places where the science and the traditions start to come together. But um, there's an ethnomusicologist, Judith Becker, and she has a book called Deep Listeners. And essentially one of the arguments she makes, she's looking at music and trance through different cultures. Um, and she, her conclusion is that people have this really profound experience listening to music. And, and I think everybody has had some experience with that. Yeah that what's happening is essentially a mini kind of trance that your move, your brain is moving into these other regions. Like you had first said, when you brought this up, well, I don't want to say out of full, full, uh, full on trance. Well, well, no, but uh, in, in the terms of David Lewis Williams, you were moving across a spectrum of consciousness away from alert rationality towards a, a more trance like um, state. And so, so that, so yeah, I think in this whole idea of engaging the imagine, imagination, it's just ways of, um, ways of moving on that spectrum or, you know, Lewis Williams concludes you have to do some sort of special things to, to, to trip it, <laughs> trip it into tripping. Um, <laughs> you know, like a lot of dancing or a lot of maybe meditating in a dark, cave or you know there's, there's you know if you um if you remove external stimulation yeah. after hours the brain will start to fill it in mm -hmm. for itself and so one of the things he says is well how do cultures incorporate that is it the gods talking to you or is it just you understand that your brain is doing stuff or do we sort of vilify it as we i think is the underlying tone and um sort of industrialized um cultures. So I think that's, I think all kinds of music can do that, but um, I don't know. I think weird music for some of the esoteric symbolic reasons we've discussed is maybe a little better yeah. at doing that. I think I would agree with you on that point. And I think we'll have to uh, leave it there. I mean, I feel like we've just touched you know, the very, very surface of all this, the scratch the surface of, uh, of all of this. But I mean, I, fascinating, fascinating, interesting uh, stuff that you're talking about. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. And thank you for sharing your music. Uh, wonderfully 
uh, engaging music. And uh, I'm really looking forward to editing the music into the video so that so that everyone can hear it as well. And of course, I'll put you know the the links to the the places where they can hear the whole the whole album, of course. Um, I was wondering if people want to contact you or if they just want to follow what it is that you're doing, how can they uh, find you online? Um, my website is randallhall.net. Um, simply, I don't do uh, a lot. Of, I have a Facebook account. I think it's still. <laughs> you do. I found you. <laughs> All right. So it's there. Um, so my website is the best, um, I okay. think. And then my Bandcamp site, uh, which is linked from my website. That's where a lot of music can be heard. Okay, excellent. I will be sure to include that in in the program notes, necessary, all the links in the description box. If anyone has questions, please, uh, please put them uh, down in the comment section below. Good luck with your book, Randall. I look forward to reading it once it's published. Uh, And I wish you very happy holidays. And thanks again for, for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for, for watching, and I'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>